Welcome to the latest edition of Canton on Effects, Saturn Devours His Children. A recent Wall Street Journal article gave full vent to an outbreak of underconsumptionist claptrap proclaimed under the catchy headline, The Coronavirus Savings Glut. Ironically, and only a day later, the paper ran a second piece entitled, How Coronavirus Abended a Trillion Dollar Corporate Borrowing Binge and Kicked Off a Wave of Bankruptcies. <laughs> Does the journal think we have too many savings or too few. The only thing clear here is that consistency comes second to clickbait and column inches. Meanwhile, politicians everywhere have been urging those they have at last let out of lockdown to get out and spend as a means of speeding the recovery. Nor have the various banks' talking heads been slow to chime in with predictably supportive exhortations for their various home governments to adopt policies aimed at driving demand. This last nonsense is the one most easily dealt with. It is not demand that the state needs to drive. It is the restrictions upon production, for which it shares much of the blame, and the uncertainties inherent to entrepreneurship, to which it greatly contributes, which it jointly now needs to minimise. Once the burden of such dead weight is lessened, production will resume, exchange will quicken, consumption will be its reward, and well-merited spending will hence increase organically, sustainably, all along the line. The message should be clear. The horse will always drink if you allow someone to earn an honest dollar for leading it to a full trough of water. As for the evident schizophrenia of commentators at once bemoaning the fact that debt loads are too heavy and that deposit balances have become too swollen, we might point out that there are two sides to a balance sheet. If the Fed, the ECB and their peers are straining manfully to monetize as much debt as they can, it shouldn't be hard to see that they are both encouraging that debt's creation and turning its proceeds primarily into deposits. In truth, the inability to recognise this simple fact has been the abiding idiocy of the past couple of decades. In all that time, there has been barely any let up in the insistence that the central bank visit ever more violence on market processes by easing. Yet such wearisome repetition tends to come from the very same pundits who fill their research notes with alarming-looking and misleadingly linear graphs showing the results of that ease piling up, as they must, on the liability side of someone's balance sheet somewhere. This leads to a continual contrapuntal cacophony of doom. One half of the choir shrieks that too much is being borrowed, while the other half responds by wailing that too little is. Pian Ponson throw their hands up in horror at the fact that the average American has only X hundred dollars in the bank to meet an emergency, yet instantly turn to outright Keynesian panic if said American makes any serious attempt to augment his or her war chest or to pay off his or her credit cards. These mental contortions are only aggravated when it comes to what our overlords are borrowing in our name. The deficit's alarming. The red ink stretches out over the years practically to infinity. We're all increasingly at the mercy of foreign lenders. Future generations are being burdened by our lack of restraint. Some will warn you. <laughs> we owe it to ourselves, others will counter. The state is providing us with a much-needed outlet for our savings, argue the likes of Stephanie Kelton, professor of Stony Broke, uh, sorry, Stony Brook University and the high priestess of the cult of MMT. With bond yields so low, we'd be insane not to borrow more to invest in boondoggles and bridges to nowhere, cry yet another pack of reheated New Dealers. Exactly, enthused the, enth enthused the intellectuals. 
anxious to add their somewhat suspect imprimatur to this transparent excuse for vote-buying incontinence. These pointy heads are only too quick to assure us that if our star, that Cheshire cat of Woodford's Wonderland economics, the so-called natural rate of interest, is as low as Bondios clearly tell us it is, and you are not to ask who it was who drove them down to those Stygian depths, then we have finally found the fabled free lunch if we can use monies raised so cheaply to boost G, the rate of growth, even a little. And even if G really stands for governmental waste and overreach. Incidentally, when the company quartermaster arrives with a squad to empty your grain store so they can fill the bellies of their fellows who are presently tramping all over your unreaped crops, and when he's done he issues you with a barely negotiable requisition chit as evidence of his theft, our star is also conveniently lower than G. Just saying. But confusion over the merits and demerits of debt are one thing. Worse yet is this notion of the existence of a glut of savings, much less that its manifestation, were it ever to occur, would be a curse and not a blessing. But in truth, in a world where people still starve, if thankfully proportionately fear of them over time, and where material needs in general remain unsated, there can be no savings glut. There can, however, be misallocations of saving, and the waste of such precious funds may be made all the more widespread and debilitating by corrupted price signals, corrupted polities, or some combination of each, but that's a very different matter from what's being posited here. In part, this persistent misconception arises when people lose sight of the crucial distinction that saving is supposed to represent an available resource, whether one destined for end consumption or first for ongoing production. Hence, it is not something which magically appears when the central bank or its pack of commercial minions sit tapping at a keyboard. If Jerome Powell or Madame Lagarde cause a million smackaroos to appear in everyone's demand account overnight, bank balances will certainly be seen to have risen. Savings, however, will not. Even a man as unnuanced as Mussolini got this, sneering during his 1920s battle for the lira, that Italians' wealth would not rise were he to force more printed pictures of them into their pockets. One wonders why mainstream macromancers cannot display a similar level of common sense, and simply acknowledge that when central banks choose to expand their balance sheets, what they do not do is generate savings in any meaningful sense. Quite the converse, in fact. In any case, one cannot state firmly enough that savings are the fuel for growth and prosperity, not some sort of choking weed clogging up the channels of commerce. Savings are what allow entrepreneurs to try to enrich themselves by making all our, their customers, lives richer in their turn. If you dry up this flow of savings, and if you further hinder genuine entrepreneurial activity, no amount of monetary inflation will help, however convincing the disguise may be, and no matter how meretricious that inflation's immediate effects appear. Sadly, the chances of these truths being accepted are vanishingly small. Rather than saving politicians, already long straining at the leash but now entirely let slip amid the havoc being wrought by the Covid episode, are being given licence to luxuriate in massive dis-saving, both in the superficial sense of the state spending wildly beyond the revenue it extracts from the rest of us, and in the deeper one of consuming scarce resources in the pursuit of undertakings of dubious worth 
which are subject to little budgetary discipline and almost no genuine democratic oversight. To see this, note that the neo-Marxists at the World Anti-Economic Forum in Davos are busy pushing the narrative that now capitalism needs a hashtag Great Reset, i.e. that it needs to become something more akin to a system Il Duce himself would easily have recognised, a system dominated by state interference and top-down directives, whether in the form of a pervasive green corporatism or by de-emphasising shareholders' rights and conscripting businesses to serve the state rather than the customer and so earn ticks on good bench virtue checklists in place of earning distributable profits for the rightful owners. Like all forms of collectivism throughout history, whether or not their mailed fist was deceptively sheathed in a velvet glove, this can only lead to moral as well as to material immiseration. It will increase inequality the worst way, not by allowing the worthy few to improve their well-deserved affluence ahead of a generally rising curve, but by reserving bigger slices of a shrinking pie to the rulers, the nomenclature who justify them, and the apparatchiks who do their will. Be under no illusions, this is a motley crew of intellectuals and chancers who are members of the same clerisy responsible for most of our current adversity. This is a grouping who have come somehow to imagine that when Schumpeter propounded his famous doctrine of creative destruction, he was suggesting that they spend their days working out ingenious new ways to pull the temple down about our ears. This exhausted elite's increasing desperation has led them to try to deflect our wrath by means of the grandiose programmes of dirigism and interventionism which they've routinely wrapped of late in the shamanic robes of millenarian climatology, schemes which are intrinsically dangerous to the common weal, to free choice, free association and free markets. However, in realising that for all Greta's dubious charm, this has not been able to persuade us to stride willingly through the gates of the stockade, they have next confected the economic and social catastrophe of the measures imposed in response to the coronavirus pandemic. Disoriented by being cut off from friends, family and comforting routine, our economic independence snatched from us, subject to a constant media barrage warning us that either our lives or those of our loved ones are at risk if we dissent from our enforced ostracism or rebel against committal to the epidemiological gulag, they have sought to sell us on the sinister concept contained within the shrunken horizons of the new normal they insist is the unavoidable consequence of the disease. The two-minute hate may not yet have come to dominate public life, but among a growing leftist liturgy, we are being exhorted to build it back better. We must clap for carers, Fridays are for future, and so on and so on. Along the same lines of impressed conformity, we are now enjoined to take a knee, ostensibly to protest at what a court will probably decide was the unlawful killing of a man, but also so that some of us be made to abase ourselves in atonement not for our sins, but for those of a very narrow selection of men and women long since dead, who inevitably subscribed to a very different set of mores, and whose historical deeds we, more unfortunate and enlightened moderns, rightly, if utterly anachronistically, now view as abhorrent. Such cheap, no, such cheapening exercises in sophomoric sloganeering are those which should at once warn us of the dark totalitarian intent which lies behind them. All of them play upon the superficially unobjective, 
imaginable and calculatedly emotive causes. All of them are aspects of a multi-pronged ideological assault upon the very fabric of society, a threat no longer even to be classed as subversive, since it has patently succeeded in permeating every last strand of that fabric, of framing every discussion and of informing every policy. Heard virtue signalling aside, our Guardian's latest turn of the screw confronts us with a much more tangible peril. Their effort to distract us with the wholly avoidable communal discord and the outright street violence now being widely propagated, while they simultaneously demonise those charged with protecting us from such a fray, can be seen to have succeeded when, like the Spartai sprung of Aetes' dragon's teeth in the myth of Jason and the Argonauts, we fall to fighting among ourselves, and so allow them to perpetuate their long and sorry period of misrule. The eager new Red Guards and the keen young pioneers, as well as the excitable mob of enragés who have been incited to act as their shop troops, may currently seem to be leading this movement, but they should be aware that they too are its intended victims, that very few pawns advance all the way up the chessboard to become Crown Queen. As that eminent expositor of revolutions Crane Brinton wrote 80 years ago, there are many common factors in each revolution, however different their particulars may be. Among them, financial breakdown, organisation of the discontented to remedy this, revolutionary demands on the part of the discontented, which if granted which mean, would mean the virtual abdication of government, attempted use of force by that government, the force's failure, and the attainment of power by the discontented. Does that sound familiar? As for the revolutionaries themselves, they are, quote, not unprosperous, but feel restraint or cramp rather than downright crushing oppression. Millennial humanity students, groaning under their ill-contracted college debts, perhaps? But the strife does not end there, for the revolutionary's seeming success only brings new conflicts in its train. They have hitherto been acting as organised and a nearly unanimous group, but with the attainment of power it is clear that they are not united. The group which dominates the first stages we call the moderates, but power passes by violent methods successively from right to left we might add, to more left still. Alas for such purists of the terror, finally the far left is itself purged by those marginally less extreme, the newly pragmatic few who have learned to be fearful of being outflanked in their appetite for destruction, and thus condemned in their turn as reactionaries. Briefly then, the madness seems to be at an end and the revolution at last secured. But the ultimate fate of all those involved is typically not the one envisaged either by the fresh-faced vanguard of the proletariat or the ravening horde of sans-culottes tearing up the boulevards around them. As Brinton sums it, silken threads of habit, tradition and legality have been broken, but men must still be held together in society. An inevitable and necessary binding only to be achieved, he tells us, by the iron chains of dictatorship. You may despise a Trump and deride a Johnson. You may have contempt for a Macron or a Morrison to name but a few among the cardboard cutouts who briefly preside over a largely self-similar, self-replicating band of politics. But before you take to the barricades or start looting the nearest Apple store, please ask yourselves, would you really rather a Cromwell, a Bonaparte, a Stalin or a Mao be in charge? Thank you. <laughs>